Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. Welcome to Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. I'm with an architect today called Bruce Trethowen. Bruce has been uh, an architect for many, many years, and um, he really works in quite an interesting way. We've had a lot of architects on the uh, program who've um, who kind of, you know, follow the borough charter and they create very contemporary additions to historic buildings. But Bruce works in another way. You probably have seen his work without knowing it. He's done things like the um, renovation of the Chanel boutique, uh, Russell and Flinders Lane, and a number of other beautiful buildings, and he's really brought them to life. So welcome to the show, Bruce. Mm, thank you, Stevie. Bruce, tell me a little bit of background in terms of your love of heritage architecture. Well, it goes back to university days, really. Um, in those days... I think the only protest I went on when I was at university was when we were protesting against the demolition of Tasma Terrace, oh, wow. <laughs> um, which eventually became Can we the age headquarters you? of the National Trust. Yeah, so that, that, that might be a good way to age me. So when was that, probably 80s? No, no, that, was, that would have been the 70s, okay. yes. Mm. And then um, also the, the teaching staff at the University of Melbourne where I studied were... Uh, a fabulous, um, interesting mix of of intellectuals, and um, through George Tibbetts and Miles Lewis, I really took on heritage as something that I, I had a I had a passion for. But it wasn't necessarily an academic study of heritage. Mm. It was more uh, it was more architectural in that I wanted to be an architect, mm. so I wanted to do things with heritage buildings. Um, and and not simply um, observe them at arm's length, but Bruce, also write about them. Bruce, what was your first project that you felt there was a calling for, or you it was well, perhaps going to be pulled down, whatever? Well, it's odd because you do get, get walk past buildings and they they speak to you sometimes, uh, and you think, well, I don't know that building, but it's it's looking at me, it's telling me something, and the first building that happened with was the buildings on the corner of Collins Street and um and spring street which is now part of one collins street and there were there were a pair of terraces there three stories high and joseph brown had his um gallery in the basement i think anyway um as time passed uh a client purchased this particular site and with my fellow partners we were commissioned to be the the architects for one collins street and that was that was a sort of a turning point from a, a heritage perspective where you didn't demolish the historic buildings but you didn't keep all of the historic buildings so as in terms of one Collins Street I haven't got it in my mind exactly but there's a high-rise tower behind it that is kind of forming part of that location that's right now now a medium rise tower you'd say medium rise <laughs> um, and it actually had a pair of a beautiful pair of terrace houses with three tiers of arcades and then importantly next to that again was um, Grosvenor Chambers which is where um, uh, Tom Roberts had his studio it was a very important artist studio complex 
Um, and even in the 60s, Wolfgang Sievers had his photography studio there. And it was I was very upset that we had to, because of all of the economies, the economics that we were dealing with, that, and you can't just leave these buildings. It wasn't even classified at the time by the National Trust. This is in the 80s? Mm, yes. 80s. Mm. So how do you stand back? Obviously, your firm at the time was commissioned to do a renovation, extension, put that medium-rise building in. How do you console yourself as an architect working with something so precious and saying, well, look, we actually have to just move back and I have to take some history, part of history away? Well, in, in, in those days, it was, it was, it was a, a real, uh, it was a real coup to be able to keep the uh, a significant section of the buildings, um, and, and demolish the rear, rear wings as we did, um, in the, in the, that case. And that was a, a real coup because before that they were just going to all go completely. Mm. And imagine if that corner, what that corner would be like now if they, they weren't mm. there. And there was a, an 18 story building located right on the corner, similar in scale to, for instance, the Manchester Unity building. Mm. So no, um, in retrospect, you, you can't go backwards. Mm. And there's, and, and history teaches you lessons as well as, um, as, as gives you gives you those guiding points, mm-hmm. and yes, um, uh, it, it, from there things developed and people started keeping facades, mm-hmm. um, which is, it know, really comes which down is, just to facades, which is which is which is bad. And mm-hmm. the planning scheme actually, uh, for all its for all its good points, that doesn't actually help there either. So. Um, when you get to other buildings, like some of the ones I've been more uh, more involved in recently, it's it's been a, a three dimensional retention, mm-hmm. so that it's not simply you're not it's not simply uh, keeping one room or keeping mm. um, keeping the facade. It's it's actually trying to keep the whole building and Bruce, touch it gently. Bruce, if we were to fast forward that building on, in Collins Street to the present, do you think? the original terraces would have been preserved completely or you think it still might have had a similar battle with the economies? Well, it, w- it would have been very hard because the, the important thing about the um, Grosvenor Chambers, the, the last building of the three, was that Tom Roberts' studio uh, was at the very rear of the, the site uh, uh, with a big arched window looking south, as you'd expect mm. in a studio. Um, and there were three other studios on the top floor, all top lit and beautifully beautiful natural light. But it's very hard when you when you take a building like that that's in the central business district, um, where land values are incredibly high, and say, oh no, we've got to keep all of it, and you mm. can't do anything on this site. So you think it mightn't have changed much? It it, it, it probably wouldn't have changed at all. In fact. Um, but uh, in other circumstances where you can get perhaps uh, um, now we can say, in, for, for instance, Fitzroy or Richmond, yes, mm. you are going to keep the whole of a building, but probably 20 years down the track we'll find that these build, buildings, have, as, as, as of a consequence of perhaps that idea, have actually been quietly fallen into disrepair and lost. Mm. So perhaps by just keeping those important sections, we've actually saved the building forever. One building that you've restored quite recently, which is what's so delightful about this building, is it appears to have come from nowhere. I'm talking about the Chanel building on the corner of uh, Flinders Lane and Russell Street, previously the home of the Scientology group. Mm -hmm. And you'd probably say it was a fairly um, unextraordinary, unextraordinary building. 
uh, to look at when it was the Church of Scientology. I wouldn't have even given it a second look. Mm. Mm. Some architects would have come and said, look, we need to do a really contemporary ground floor uh, addition to this building, and and you've, you've actually given it a new life. Yes, yes. With the Chanel building, it, it was a... Um, uh, a good thing because the the funny thing about those buildings that were built in between the wars, particularly in the city and particularly if they were occupied by banks or institutions, mm. is that people sitting in the off, upper office floors weren't allowed to look out the window. So the window sills were incredibly high so that mm. if you were sitting at a desk, um, you couldn't look out the window except to look up to the sky. And some of those features of those buildings are things that, by today's standards, we just find mm. not acceptable. Mm. Uh, and uh, and so what we did at the sh- at that particular building was we we actually lowered the window sills, but we right did to it floor. No, not to floor level, but but to to around about um, two foot or three mm. foot above floor level, so that it, you could see out the windows. Um, but strangely enough, no one's ever noticed that. <laughs> Well, I thought they were original. It's interesting. It's no. almost like the scaffolding has just been pulled down overnight and we've got this beautifully restored building. So it's a very... It was a delight for me to see it the first time. I thought it's really uh, rejuvenated that corner. But a lot of architects would would say, well, we can't take it back to something else. We have to kind of go forward all the time. Mm. And even though you're going forward, you're going backwards as well. Mm, yes, But a, a lot of architects would say, look, no, we can't do that. We'll just do contemporary insertions wherever there's a new new bit of work to be done. Mm. And that would have kind of made the building quite fussy. Yes, I think it would have taken away from its simplicity. And, and that's what we always had in mind, mm. to keep the building as simple as possible. We had to adjust some openings mm. and we had to um, install some arched openings where, they'd, where they're in... Perhaps originally they weren't mm. there, we, we don't know. But by putting putting it back in a way that you didn't you actually didn't you, you could could you could notice but but it, it was all part of a whole mm. rather than seeing something jarring down mm. at one end poking out or um a piece of a, a piece of contemporary design standing in defiance mm. um that the the whole the whole facade composition is something that you just look at now and say oh isn't that isn't that isn't a delight to the eye when you're working with someone like chanel you would have had a, i imagine a fairly strong brief from them in terms of what's required how difficult is it working with a multinational well their their requirements are really they were a very good client because they didn't ask for anything um they uh, they simply said we want the best we want something that's fantastic mm-hmm. and um from that that perspective i went back and said well let's let's look at the culture of chanel and where it started and the buildings that it's occupied and make our building in paris and make our building look like it's part of chanel and um that's where where we came from and but uh, they didn't actually tell us what to do they mm-hmm. said it's your design you're That's the designer amazing. we want to see what you want to do for us um and that's, so that's unusual it, it, it's a good a good client it, mm. it takes a very a, a wise client to do that um and and uh, i guess a very confident client but um that's what that's what they did and um anything we wanted to change or alter mm. they were they were very receptive 
to. Of course, the 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 retail interior, uh, because it's a, one of those large multinationals, has to be done by uh, by their international standards. But again, the interior designer who did all that was quite sympathetic to the building as well and mm-hmm. what we were doing, and didn't didn't interfere at all. The interior designer based in Paris or. Based in no, Australia? Uh, no, he, he's based in New York. Hmm. And who was that? Um, Peter... Rame- Peter... Um, I can't remember his name. Oh. I'm well, sorry. That's OK. Um, but that is an unusual relationship. I'll remember in a minute. <laughs> yeah, that, Bruce, that is an unusual situation because most of these corporates... Are Peter Marino, I'm sorry. Peter Marino. Hmm. Most of these corporates worldwide, very strict guidelines in terms of what you can do and what you can't do. Every bit of signage has to be you know approved by an endless number of departments mm, I imagine those so. I imagine those depart imagine doing those briefs are really quite problematic because you just feel like you're ticking boxes rather than actually doing something creative well um, it, it's interesting we've we've worked with with other uh, of these companies including Prada um, and uh, they all have their 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 fit out is is absolutely precise uh, and in in all cases, the next door is is another step in their retail story. They don't mm-hmm. they don't stand still and say, "Oh, this is our standard. We're going to stick to it." They they really look to their in, des- designers to take the next step at every new mm-hmm. new retail premises they open, because they have to be they're so competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the amount of detail that um, uh, the interior designers went to on in the case of Chanel was was fantastic that everything was designed internally down to down to a millimeter amazing very very t- and they were taking um, uh, rulers across the floor and precisely measuring uh, everything they were doing it was it was fantastic and, and when you walk in there you can see that now you've just restored or well, Designed because it really is a, a breath of fresh air to um, Brunswick Street. It's it's the new Thonet, uh flagship store in uh, Brunswick Street yes. in Fitzroy. A three-level building, quite classical, very run down, and it had a, quite a, an unsightly uh, credit union uh, occupancy on the ground floor. Um, and all of a sudden, we, we see this building now in a completely different light. Um, the owner, Susie Forge, who's a designer and a writer, bought this building a number of years ago. And I, and I think when she saw the original drawings, she probably had quite a fixed idea about what to do. What did you... How was your response when you first saw the original drawings presented by Susie? Well, the yes, the 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 original facade had, had completely disappeared on the ground floor, but on the upper two floors, it was perfectly intact. Intact, uh, in fact, down to the colour scheme, it had never been painted again. So, um, it it really begged begged two so, sort of solutions to be looked at. One, the idea of a new contemporary shop front. Mm-hmm. And the other idea of continuing the columns and the pilasters on the on the upper facade and bringing them down to the ground floor. So doing a contemporary arrangement at ground floor was considered. It's an option. Mm. Yes, I think I think any any architect's going to look at any option. But mm. but when you when you look at it, it would have gener- generated a huge amount of glass. It would have generated perhaps a, a yawning hole um, in 
in a ground floor that was above which was a lot of solid masonry and columns. So, so the idea of, of taking the more conservative option and being very understated and simply finishing the building off as it originally looked mm-hmm. um, was, was, was the one we went for. And um, that, in turn, has generated huge amounts of glass, um, so much so that even before it was finished, um, we had uh, retail people coming and saying, can we, can we be in there? Can we be in this there? We love right. the glass. No, others mm. too. Can mm. we be in there? Can, we love the glass. We love the... And, and, we, and to be contemporary, we detailed all of the window details in steel. Rather um, than wood. Rather than wood, which is the way it would have been originally. Um, and that, that gave a nice... Um, sharp. Sharp finish and, and clean, clean finish to the... Um, to the facade and allowed the the merchandise inside obviously to be beautifully presented it's, it's interesting what arch- architecture can do to a streetscape because before this came in this was a little bit well it was just okay it looked a bit run down the whole thing you'd kind of think well what would go in you know fast food whatever this is now a very beautiful building and it's really uh, it's almost like throwing a little um pebble into a pond and the ripple effect but this will cause quite a ripple in brunswick street Mm, i hope so i hope so and the interesting thing is of course that we we didn't do anything with the interior we we apart from repairing what was original Mm -hmm. uh, so the interior ceilings and the internal linings are all the way it was with our new new bits and pieces put in new staircases and stuff like that but uh the the old goes beyond the facade into the mm. interior so that you've got this 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 important quality that mm. the building is not just the facade it's mm. actually four right walls through. and a roof and and an interior it was originally the uh, a haberdashery store correct yeah it was it was like a big department store hmm. mm. um, and there were a lot of those in particularly in Brunswick Street and Smith Street of course and so it was selling all sorts of uh, fabrics and household items mm. uh, for people to, to, to purchase. And, and in fact, Susie went up into the roof once and found the banner that they used to hang off the building when there was a sale on. And it's a huge <laughs> banner. It's as big as a room. What's she done with it? Oh, she's, she's having it repaired. And it'll be used for Thonno when they have their uh, sale. Be, well, I don't know whether it'll ever fly again, but it, it used to hang over Brunswick Street uh, and advertise the advertise the the store. The um, Bruce, you've also done this. You won an award for this latest project. You better pronounce it, Coriol. Coriol. Coriol, uh, a wonderful sandstone homestead uh, outside of Geelong. What was the story behind that? Because it is a Fascinating. Won a Heritage Award at yes. the Institute of Architects, Victorian yes. chapter recently. Hmm. Well, it was it was it's it's a fabulous house. It was it's a very unusual house uh, in that it's it dates from the pre gold rush era. There's not hmm. many uh, buildings uh, in Victoria that do date from that early time, and it was actually built for two women who were living together at the time. Hmm. Uh, and it was their, uh, and they were squatters, and this was their country property. And over the years, it had fallen into incredible disrepair. It was designed by an, an architect who, like all architects, had a bit of problem with his water penetration, mm. and um, 
over the years the roof had started to deteriorate and the rot had started to come through the whole building fabric. Um, but uh, it's nevertheless a very important building and um, it was purchased by um, another heritage architect friend, Bryce Rayworth, and his wife, Isabel. And um, Bryce set about uh, doing all of the necessary repairs and restoration uh, and he left it to me to do all of the necessary um, incursions onto mm. the original fabric to bring the house up to a, up to a state where it could be lived in, mm. in, in current circumstances. So there were a whole series of bathrooms, kitchens, uh, laundries and service areas that had to be incorporated into the building without anybody actually knowing. Okay. So, um, and that's what we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a bit of a team effort, uh, significantly, because Isabel was the project manager and I was the uh, the new heritage architect and Bryce was the old heritage architect. So the three of us really had a very good time uh, working out what to do. And added to that, there was a, a, an army of craftsmen mm-hmm. who spent a lot of time down there and who were also very dedicated to, Must- to the restoration works. Uh, Bruce, it must be fascinating when you're going through these buildings as knowing what to keep, what to retain, how far to push something in a contemporary way. You know, do you keep it away from the sides of the walls? And, you know, it must be every decision must be quite a difficult one. It is. It is. It's not hard once you get used to it. But in the case of Coriel, we when we were putting in new bathrooms into a large internal room and dividing it up in fact into a series of much smaller uh, smaller spaces uh, all of the original skirtings and architraves of that room were retained and the new works were done in a very contemporary way so that anyone walking in there would immediately identify the, the past that, that, that there's a past here and there's also a present and and I think that the the design um, the design challenge there is to to not allow the two to come together in a jarring sort of a way. They have to be softly old and new have to come together softly without without the new just hitting the old in a way that is is virtually aggressive so a shadow line or or some other sensitive way of making that joint so that it it it's not screaming at it's you. not screaming at you it's just a, a quiet the the, the, the join happens in a, in a shade so that you don't see the fact that the, 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 there's a there's a perhaps a disjunction between old and new bruce is that kind of a trend amongst people who are working with heritage building that there is that softer approach now rather than this jarring old and new because I think for a while I was seeing an, an awful lot of um, renovations where it was almost like this very harsh delineation between the past and present and you really, it was almost like it would shake you out into a new period. Is there a slight change in approach that people are thinking, look, we want delineation between the two periods but we don't want it to be jarring? Or is it still the jarring idea is really what the borough charter's suggesting? Well, I, I think the borough charter's being reasonably flexible here, but it, it comes down to uh, the design inspiration that's influencing a particular, a particular house or building. So, for instance, um, when you get um, when you get an architect who's design, renovating a house and wants to make a big statement out of it that's where you can often find a, a new new design that's going to be jarring mm. um, uh, 
where you get someone who's probably had a little bit more time to think about, I don't want something to jar. I want it to quietly sit there. It's it's another it's another sort of way of thinking about things, and and it can be done very very well with contemporary design. I mean, I went to Venice recently and saw the new um, Denton Corker Marshall Australian Pavilion. Mm. Uh, and it's a, a very uncompromising piece of, of modern architecture and it's minimal in its in so many ways, yet it sits on its site uh, amongst other buildings in a way that that uh, it sits amongst its peers. There's no... There's nothing... It's not greater than the other buildings and it's not less. It's part of the overall context. And I think that takes a little bit of time to get to grips with. Mm-hmm. You've got to... You, maybe you've got to get over that thing of I'm going to do this as my first big job and mm. it's going to be me. Mm. Uh, but there's more to it than that. I think you've got to think, oh, no, it's not just me. It's 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 everything else. It must be uh, in your position because you get to see some great houses and you've got some amazing clients. But there must be it must be quite a difficult um, role to play when you see something extraordinary, really extraordinary, quite beautiful, whether it's Art Nouveau or early 20th century, and the client says, oh, I just hate this, Bruce. Well, I just want something <laughs> nice and modern. Get rid of it. Okay, I'm what, out what, the door. What, what do you do? <laughs> I'm out the door. Do you really? <laughs> no, not not necessarily. How do, you, how do you kind of get a client around to your way of thinking that they actually look back on the house and go, this is actually quite beautiful? Well, you've got to, you've got to start clients looking at the positives um, and and allowing those positive qualities to be evident to them as their, their discovery and and then saying, well, there's potential here uh, with this particular quality that the house has. Why don't we, we use it? And, uh, again, it, it, it depends on the, on the nature of the client. Some clients will say, no, look, I don't care. I want that staircase that Gone. I saw in Gone with the Wind, and that's it. I want that big staircase. What do you do? You do it? Well, in some in some cases, you can say, "Look, um, I think I'm not for you," mm-hmm. um, and I think I think you've got to find someone else who's going to be prepared to do that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, in other cases, you can say, "Well, let's look at the whole thing and and do something that is going to." Um, meet meet a series of uh, design standards that that are, are going perhaps meet a, another market, the market who's going to go and buy this house in the long term, after we're finished doing doing with it. And that, there's 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 ways of convincing people around a different level of thinking, but of course they have to be ready to be, they have to be receptive and they have to respect you, and they have but and but they have to be open minded about things. In your time as an architect, and you've worked for a number, many, many years, do you think we've become more respectful of heritage? And is it moving forward? So do you find that you're getting calls now from people who have 50s and 1950s and 60s houses who are saying, well, that's actually heritage as well? Or you're specialising in more early 20th century? Oh, look, there's there's various, varying degrees. There's a lot of people who who, who can't accept the 50s and 60s is something that they really want to keep because it's got a, a memory attached to it and that the memory was not perhaps a happy one. <laughs> um, 
and that that but but then there's a common belief that yes there are a lot of important 50s and 60s houses there's a dilemma with a lot of them too because they're constructed often with cedar or materials that have, are rotting completely mm-hmm. and they have to be rebuilt mm-hmm. so you 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 you've got to convince them that not only are we going to keep this building but we're actually going to have to rebuild a lot of it and because it's expensive because it's expensive and um, and the same can happen with a, a, a little timber cottage, little timber fisherman's cottage down in Queenscliff. You actually have to, it's it has a heritage overlay, it has protection, but you actually have to rebuild it to keep it. I remember an architect was telling me there was a client they had who was particularly difficult and um, they kept presenting schemes to them and they said, oh, you know, we've seen it, we've seen it. Oh, we don't want to see it. We've seen everything and everything that they presented they'd seen. And in the end, they discovered there was one of the most significant, uh, you know, very old homesteads under many, many layers and they mm. couldn't do anything. Have you come across a project where people just wanted to bulldoze the whole house down and they've realised, well, they have to actually keep the whole thing? Well, that that happens a lot. Um, people, people come to... Um, myself and other mm. heritage specialists and say, oh, well, would you support us demolishing this house? Mm. And um, in, in, in generally, we have to say, well, look, have you looked at retaining it instead? Um, have you looked at the positives? Because that must be quite a blow. If they've really got in their head something really contemporary and then they're told they have to retain a little shack from 1820 or 1830 must be incredibly devastating for them. It can be, but others, others, it's something that they want to do. They want to do it because they know it's the, it's something that they've, they've seen heritage disappear and they've seen buildings demolished and they don't want the same thing to happen in their backyard. So I, I, I've got lots of happy stories too. Um, What's one of the happiest stories? <laughs> I always like to end on a happy note. What's a happy story that you've kind of, something that's really come left to field that you really... Uh... Well, a happy story, really, it's a funny story, but and I don't know whether you've got time to listen to yes. it, but it's, it's, it's really about my house, because I bought my house in East Melbourne, and it was, for, for six months before I bought it, it was actually a brothel, uh, and it, it had... Um, it was it was a real mess. It was an absolute an absolute mess. Mm. But as I looked at it more and more, um, I realised it was designed by an architect, and it it had a lot of interesting materials about it. And so I set about putting my stamp on what was quite an an, an interesting but not great mm. example of of interwar. Um, or no, just pre-First World War architecture, and and it's been a happy a happy tale because um, there's all the, over time I've found families who've lived in the house or people who've lived in the house and they've come back and told me about it, and so the house, like all heritage buildings, has got lots of layers attached to it now. It's got the layers of when it was a brothel, and I I can point out things that this was there when it was a brothel, Mm -hmm. and then other times you can point out, well, this is where when the whole house was full of nurses, because they're all there were a lot of hospitals in Mm -hmm. the area and there were nurses living here, and this is from the nurses' era. And and history is actually all of those layers of time, Mm -hmm. and and possibly the the big challenge for people to realise with heritage is that we're not standing still with any heritage building. We're always adding a layer, mm. and the skill is is not to lose some of those those layers that are in between. 
so a building that has been altered over time can be actually quite quite interesting because it shows a layer of history that is part of that history, even if it's had, um, you know, lots of frou-frou urns and yeah. mouldings and balustrades added to it. Yeah. It's part of the, the time, the, when that time, it might have been in the 1950s, yeah. uh, a, a migrant family bought it and they decided to make it nice. Yeah. And that was their way of that taking And And there's, there's buildings in Carlton that are like that. In a sense, uh, Susie Forge operates that way. She, when she works through uh, her work... There's readings of the past. So even the Brunswick building that's now Thonne, on the side of the building it says, you know, it was once used for plumbers. That would have been after the drapery store. So she's kept all that. Mm. And I've found in in the few instances I've looked at her work, you can read the layers. And I do find that quite special. Mm, And mm. I think it enriches you. You walk out of a place thinking you actually know... History. Yes, there's a history to this place, and it's not just. And, and sometimes when you do restore a building, you take it back. You actually take away those layers of yeah. history, and it's not. It's not a, a necessarily a, a successful heritage yeah. outcome. Although for some people they say, "Oh, it's 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 original now," yeah. but what it's not really. What does that mean, Bruce? It's been an absolute delight speaking to you today. Um, I love what you're doing, and I love the fact that I can walk past buildings and think. Where was that? Where did that come from? Because it is a surprise. And I think the Chanel building is an example. I think the new um, uh, Thonne headquarters in Brunswick Street, a sense of, well, it it wouldn't be right without it. Mm. So I thank you on Mm. behalf of all Melburnians who have the privilege to have these buildings because (laughs) they weren't there before. Even though they were there before, they're certainly there now. Let's hope they're there for a long, long time. (laughs) <laughs> You've been with, um, I've been talking to Bruce Trethowan, Director of uh, Trethowan Architects, and you've been listening to Talking Design with Stephen Crafty at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you, Stephen.